Welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today, Rabbi Wilds talks with world-renowned sex and couples therapist, Dr. Shai Krug. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Okay, we are live. Welcome, everyone, to the Wilds Cast, the MGE's podcast. I have the great honor and pleasure of introducing an old friend, uh, someone I've known literally since he was born. Uh, Dr. Shai Krug is a clinical psychologist and a asect. Did I say that right? A asect. Okay, asect certified sex therapist, and he's the founder and director of Blue Anchor Psychology, which is a group practice here in Manhattan, which is focused on sex therapy, couples therapy, trauma, mood, anxiety disorders. Uh, Dr. Krug. Uh, also serves as a consulting psychologist at the James Peters VA Medical Center, where he is the co-found, where he co-founded the Sexual Health Clinic. Uh, so he is quite a accomplished, very young but quite accomplished psychologist uh, and a Torah observant Jew. I must add, he completed his postdoctoral fellowship at the James Peters VA Medical Center in the assessment and treatment of post traumatic stress disorder. We're all familiar with PTSD. And he's got a postdoctoral certificate also in sex therapy from the Buechler, Bueller Institute. Bueller. Yeah. Like, like the movie, Bueller. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, in his spare time, Dr. Krug also works as a professional magician. And I've actually seen him in that capacity too. And he's pretty amazing. Uh, and I must confess to everyone that this is a very special moment for me because Dr. Shai Krug is the son of my teacher and mentor, Rabbi Dr. Johnny Krug, uh, who's also a clinical psychologist, a very, very accomplished clinical psychologist and rabbi, Renaissance rabbi, who was tremendous, tremendous influence and mentor of mine. And Shai and I have known each other for many, many years. And he was also my son Yosef's bar mitzvah teacher, which I said before, surprised it didn't make it into the bio. <laughs> but uh, Shai, thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me. It is really an honor and a pleasure. Listen, you've been doing couples therapy uh, for five or six years now. Tell us, we've got a lot of singles, 20s and 30s, listening to this. What do you recommend in terms of what to look for in a relationship? What should our single listeners be looking for in a potential spouse that in your professional uh, estimation will contribute to a long-term relationship? Sure. So there's generally three broad categories that I talk with couples about. There, there are three broad categories that I talk with couples about um, to help build the foundations of strong relationships, how to maintain those strong relationships moving forward. Uh, so the first of those factors is something called stimulation factor. Stimulation factor really relates to what is the degree to which you are charged up by the other person. So stimulation can show up in a variety of different factors, in a variety of, variety of different ways. You can have emotional stimulation, intellectual stimulation, physical stimulation, such as are you attracted to the person? There's all these different ways you can feel stimulated or excited or charged up by the other person. And in the absence of stimulation, you can end up, end up with relationships that might feel kind of bo uh, boring or dull or dry. They're not going to have the kind of excitement or thrill that brings you a sense of reward and meaning in that relationship. So the first of those uh, of those categories is stimulation factor. Do you feel excited by the other person? Do you feel like you're, you're, you're your best self? Do you find that you're funnier when you're with this other person? Do you feel that you're uh, you know, on your best game? Are you feeling charged up and energized by this other person? The second category is something called ego support 
Well, before let me just jump in before we get to ego support, and this is great. How stimulated do you need to be? Because this is a question I get. You know, maybe when people are a little younger and dating, and you know, falling head over heels. But when people are dating, let's say a little older, and are more "quote unquote" realistic about things, like how much does that stim? I mean, obviously, it needs to be there as well. But how much? It's a great question. That really depends on each individual. There's not. There's no real. A specific metric by which we can gauge a person's level of stimulation. But one thing that is important is that over the course of a relationship, stimulation changes. So earlier in relationships, stimulation is more often of the passionate type, right? You have more passionate, more fire in the relationship. And then as relationships evolve and develop, you end up with more compassionate, compassionate dynamics in the relationship where you're connected more um, on, on an emotional level or with shared interests or finding shared meaning. And those transitions are quite normal that take place in relationships. It's why there's this quote-unquote honeymoon period that happens after marriage, that people, that couples feel like they're flying high and that there's, in many cases, a heightened level of relationship satisfaction or, uh, or life satisfaction in the immediate aftermath of a new relationship. But then you kind of have this plateau effect where you kind of settle into the relationship. And so the, what stimulation looks like over the course of a relationship can, can definitely vary. But how much stimulation someone has in a relationship is very much a personal experience that some people may place more emphasis on things like intellectual stimulation. I want to sit down with someone who I can have a really heart to heart philosophical conversation or talking about the arts or science or technology or Torah. Those are the things I get a real charge out of. Some people feel more of a connection by discussing more emotional content and talking about your thoughts and your feelings and your memories. And mm -hmm. that's where mm -hmm. someone feels stimulation. So there isn't necessarily a quote unquote right way or wrong way to have stimulation or what is a good amount or a bad amount, but what works for a person, what works for the dynamics in a relationship that becomes more central. Right. And, and how, how important would you say is physical attraction? I mean, you're a sex therapist, so you're dealing with this all the time. What level, because this is a question, you know, Rabbi, I, I have some level of attraction. I'm definitely somewhat physically attracted, but, you know, I'm not seeing stars. Um, you know, or on Tuesdays, I'm attracted and Wednesdays, not so much. Thursdays, a little more. You know, is that sufficient? It's a great question. So physical attraction, physical arousal is very much a product of the dynamics in a relationship. Mm -hmm. Right. So what a person finds to be attractive will in many ways be in, be affected, be impacted by the nature of the emotional connection. So that is also something that evolves over time. So I actually hear from couples on a regular basis. If I if I work with a couple early in their relationship, that they, they may report that how attracted they felt to their spouse or to their their partner, uh, to their boyfriend, to their girlfriend may have evolved as they develop more of an emotional connection. So what a person feels in terms of physical attraction, physical stimulation is not separated. It's not a separate entity from mm -hmm. what goes on emotionally. So how that evolves certainly changes. But the fact and, that would you say, and Shai, would you say that that holds the same for men and women? Because I know I've spoken to a lot of women who have said to me, you know, I, at first I wasn't so attractive, but then it built up as my feelings and emotions. Would you say that's true of men too? I think that certainly is true. I think as a general rule of thumb, men are more visual than women. Uh, mm -hmm. But as a general rule of thumb, I, I do think that emotional connection plays a significant role in physical attraction. Now, that being said, you can't make someone physically attracted to someone else, right? The, the parts of our brain that are involved in physical attraction and sexual attraction are not parts of our brain that we have conscious control over. 
So those are parts of our brains that evolve and develop over time. In most cases, mm-hmm. we don't really fully understand why they develop the way they do. Uh, Jack Mirren wrote a book called The Erotic Mind, where he talks about this, that we, our, erotics, our erotic minds develop in ways that we don't really fully understand. So we can't mm-hmm. manipulate attraction. So if you don't have attraction to someone, you can't force yourself to. But what you can do is create the conditions to build that kind of attraction by facilitating the emotional connections. Excellent. Thank you. That's really helpful. You, you, I cut you off. You were about to talk about something else. Sure. So ego support is the second <laughs> uh, broad category that I talk with couples about. And ego support has to do with the friendship quality in a relationship. Uh, John Gottman, in fact, who's one of the uh, preeminent uh, couples researchers, researchers in the world, talks about this in the context of what he calls love maps, which is effectively, what is the nature of the friendship in the relationship? Do you feel a sense of kinship? Do you know the other person? Do I have a, a good working internal model, almost like a, a mental map of what your experiences are? Do I, do I know you? Do I have this connection, this friendship quality? And when we talk about ego support, a big piece of that conversation is, do I feel that the other person would show up for me in the ways that I need? So for example, if you're uh, your car breaks down on the side of a road and your phone's about to die. You can make one phone call and you're going to call one person. You want to know, will this person show up for me if I call this person, right? So that's kind of what ego support is. It's this, it's this I've got your back mentality. And that's rooted ultimately in the friendship quality and the relationship. Are we Is our relationship founded on friendship? Do we have this kind of connection that allows for the erotic or the emotional or the relational elements of a relationship, and in fact, stimulation factor in many ways, to develop and evolve as well. So that's how ego support speaks to the friendship quality in a relationship. Now, one of the things that's important to note is that you may note that you can see stimulation factor or ego support in different kinds of relationships, right? You may have a professor, for example, in college or or graduate school, who's really intellectually stimulated, stimulating. You feel charged up and energized by the content of your courses, but you're not in a romantic relationship with your professor, right? So in a romantic relationship, you actually want to have all three of these components. I'll I'll get to the third one in just a moment, but you can have relationships that are just ego support. Someone who's a a good buddy of yours, but doesn't necessarily charge you up or you have, you know, uh, you know, interesting intellectual or emotional discussions, but you can still feel a certain sense of friendship and trust with. So these different elements can show up in all different kinds of relationships, but in romantic ones, you want to see all three of these elements. Um, Okay, and and before you get to the third, okay, and before you get to the third, just staying on ego support for a minute. So I think what a lot of couples complain also is that, you know, you can feel that ego support once you're settled down with someone, once you're married to someone and you're really, you know, you have children and you're sacrificing, what do you recommend a couple does? I mean, we're, they're going out on dates. They're meeting at Starbucks for coffee. They're walking in Central Park. How do those kinds of experiences translate into feeling that I'm there for you? I'm really, really there for you, like you say. So I think the way that we start that is open-ended questions. When you're asking someone a question in an open-ended way, right? A closed-ended question is, do you like pizza, right? It's a yes or no question. An open-ended question is, tell me about the kinds of foods you like. Right. So that might might seem like somewhat of an insignificant question, like what how is my asking what kind of food someone likes? How is that going to feed into our our dynamic interactive relationship? But you are now gathering data points. You are learning about the other person. And basically, I am I have when I first meet someone, a blank map in my mind that I'm going to start filling in that map with my 
partner's story. I want to know where you came from. Tell me about your upbringing. Tell me about your childhood. What are things you're passionate about? What are your goals? What are your dreams in life? What are the things you're most fearful in life? What are the things that really kind of uh, scare you in your core? And those kinds of open-ended questions, I am filling in my, as, as Gottman calls, my love map. I am learning about you. And as I learn about you, I connect myself to you because I can understand things about you that I didn't know before. And when I start to facilitate those that kind of connection through these open-ended questions, I start to build that ego support. I start to build a certain emotional connection as I engage in the parts of your experience. You're effectively letting me into your mind, letting me into your heart by opening up about your experiences. And the only way we get there is, is talking about it, open-ended questions. So that would be, I think, is the, is the most primary way to build up the, that ego support. Okay, so it's making yourself a little vulnerable by opening yourself up and 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 to more open-ended questions. Okay, so we got stimulation factor. You got to be excited about the person. We talked about to what degree. The ego support, you got to really feel this person's got your back. Tell us the third and last. The third one is called utility. Utility comes down to some of the nuts and bolts of the workings of a relationship, right? Does this person know how to be a responsible adult? Can they, can they pay their bills? Will they be able to follow through on their with you know on their accountabilities? Are they are they um, able to take care of whatever responsibilities they have to to maintain the running of a home? Because you want to ultimately have a relationship with someone that can help balance out the goings on of adulthood, right? If you don't want a situation where I'm the adult in the room and I'm having to kind of drag my wife by the arm to to get her to do the things that that uh, that you know has that helps with a sense of balance in the home. I want to feel like I have a partner and we're running this together. We're working together to maintain uh, a functional household and raising children and navigating the invariable ups and downs that come with life because, you know, let's call it what it is. Life is really stressful and you're not going to be able to escape life without having to deal with some of those stressors. So if I have someone with me in my relationship who knows how to take on those responsibilities and can navigate some of those invariable ups and downs that show up, it gives me a sense of companionship in that process. And that comes down in many ways to what is the utility? Does this person have the skills or the insights to be able to take those kinds of responsibilities and then run with those responsibilities? So this is a little bit more of a pragmatic element to a relationship. Dr. Shai Krug just mentioned three factors, and he was just dwelling. You were just discussing the third one, so I'll let you finish that one. But the first one, in looking for the right person, in looking for a potential spouse, a partner who can contribute to the sustainability of a long-term relationship, stimulation, got to be excited about the person. And we talked about what level that was, ego support. You have to feel like that person really has your back. And now you're talking about utility. Uh, just just reiterate a little what you were saying, speaking about utility, the third factor and what we should look for. Sure. So utility comes down in many ways to the, pra the practical and pragmatic uh, responsibilities that go on in running a relationship, right? Things like taking care of of uh, paying your bills, paying your taxes, taking care of kids, showing up for uh, for appointments, kind of keeping keeping up with the the responsibilities, the practical responsibilities that are involved in the runnings of a relationship. And if it ultimately falls on one person to maintain those kinds of responsibilities, it can become taxing on the other person to feel like I have to take care of everything and I have to to schedule everything. And when you when you have a situation like that, it feels like less of a partnership. And more like one person's running the show and you're kind of dragging the other person along. 
So it can create a certain sense of isolation or loneliness or likely ways frustration in a relationship if one person is kind of playing the role of the uh, the orchestrator of the of you know taking care of responsibilities and the other person is kind of just like you know falling in line and, and following along but not necessarily taking on some of that responsibility so you really want to have some degree of this of this utility of does this person know how to be a functional adult do they know how to hold down a job do they know how to how to engage in in self-care and running a home those are those are important pieces to uh to a relationship and as I mentioned before, you kind of want to see all three of those elements in a healthy, functional relationship. So, so let me stop you there. When, when you say you need to have all three, because like, it's just that, you know, one of the issues that I think a lot of sort of, I don't want to call them serial daters, but a, a lot of people who've been dating for a long time get to a place where as we get older, sometimes the list gets longer. And I'm a little concerned sometimes with making the bar too high. Um we can compromise a little in terms of stimulation factor, how excited you are about the person, how much do you think they've got your back, the ego support, and then how responsible are they to, be, to pay their bills, hold down a job, and so on and so forth. Like, um, where is the compromise here? How can we, you know, um, I mean, I guess you need some of all three. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. You need to have those elements present to some degree. Okay. Imagine a relationship where there is a lot of stimulation and a lot of utility, but there's zero trust. Right. <laughs> you don't believe that this person will show up for you. If you if you were in, you know, you're in a dark alley in the middle of the night and you're scared and you call your spouse and they don't show up. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine a right. relationship being founded on that basis. On the same level, if you had a relationship where there was great trust and great utility, but you are bored out of your mind, you're gonna have a hard time investing right. in that kind of relationship. Right. You have a right. relationship where there's a lot of stimulation and a lot of ego support, but the person can't maintain a job. So you're financially really struggling and right. you don't know how to how to be responsible and they're they're not taking care of their their, their their child responsibilities. It's really hard to have a sustainable relationship where one person has to carry the entire weight of running the home without that resulting in a tax on the relationship. Right, right. And where what about values? I mean, you know, this is <clears throat> The Wilds cast, this is MGE. So we're we're promoting Jewish values. We want Jews to marry Jews. We want them to raise their kids in the ways of Torah and mitzvot. So um, which one of these three does it fall under? I mean, the stimulation factor, I guess part of what stimulates you is that you've got, you're working towards the same goals in life. The ego support, I guess that, I mean, I guess it impinges on all, it's not a fourth category, right? This is it. <laughs> values will underlie all three. So you'll notice you mm -hmm. embody many different roles in your life, right? So Rabbi Wilds, you're a rabbi, you're a father, you're a son, uh, you're a brother, uh, mm -hmm. you're a, a leader in your community. There's many different roles that you play. And each of those different roles will be guided by a different set of values, right? So the kind of father you are is likely to be a very different kind of brother you are. There may be some overlapping values, but you don't treat your brother the way you treat your son, right? You have a very mm -hmm. different kind of dynamic. The way that you act as a rabbi may be very different than how you act as, let's say, a basketball player on, on a, a sports team, right? right. The, the different roles you play are guided by different values. Each of these different categories will be guided by a, a somewhat different set of values. There will invariably be overlapping values, but the kind of friend you want to be to your spouse is going to be potentially very different than the kind of intellectual partner you want to be with your spouse. You may say my intellectual elements, my, that, that stimulation factor is going to be driven by curiosity and exploration and passion, Whereas my values related to ego support might be communication and honesty and trust. 
Right. So you're going to have right. values that are unique to those different categories and some values that underlie all three. But ultimately, being in touch with those values allows you to then make choices that engage you in these different categories. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, t- tell us a little about fighting. I mean, everybody fights. <laughs> I've, I've, uh, um, tell us a little about the right ways, the wrong ways to fight, because, you know, I've been trying to counsel couples for many, many years navigating some serious differences that they have to work out and not everybody's got the ground rule. So maybe you can help us with that. Sure. So there's a, a couple of rules I like to, to review with, uh, with couples. And this comes up in John Gottman's research. He talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there are effectively four different patterns of communication that pretty significantly can predict difficulties in relationships. And so when I, when I work with couples or when I work with even uh, you know, premarital couples, before you're even, you know, at the, at the stage of, of marriage, how do you preemptively prepare for how to engage in conflict in an effective way? Because you can engage in conflict in a way that tears at the fabric of your relationship or that tears at the fabric or the character of the other person. Or you can engage in conflict that's really about opening up about your own vulnerabilities, about the parts of your experience that are painful and letting your partner in in a meaningful way. So those four horsemen of the apocalypse, as John Gottman calls them, the first is criticism. So criticism, mm-hmm. which is very different than critique, right? Critique is, I don't like something that you did. Criticism is, I don't like something that you are. So I am making mm-hmm. categorical comments about who you are as a person. So a, a simple example of this might be, a critique is, you didn't take out the garbage last night, right? I'm telling you something that you didn't do that I wanted you to do. That's a critique. Criticism is, you never take out the garbage. Mm-hmm. What I am mm-hmm. parenthetically saying when I say you never take out the garbage is I'm saying you're selfish. You are the kind of person who would never take out the garbage. So I am now making a character statement about you mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. that commentary. So the first is criticism. I'm making so that's no, so 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 avoid those when you're fighting and you're upset that your partner doesn't take out the garbage. Avoid using the words never. You never take out the garbage. Focus it on the on Tuesday night. You didn't take out the garbage. <laughs> exactly. So when we okay. keep arguments in the here and now. Keeping the arguments us, in the here and now. It allows you know, us to talk right. about the here and now. Exactly. And by the way, there's a, there's a term. I think my father shared this with me. It's called shashis and mehabracious. The first six days of creation, when you get into a fight, you know, I guess other people say it. Uh, you bring up the kitchen sink. Like, what is this? All of a sudden, everything comes out. You know, you're exactly. going back to the six days of creation. <laughs> exactly. And that's Don't do that. Don't do that. Because what does that elicit in a person when they when they see that happening? They want to jump into defensive mode. Of course. And that's right. the second of the four horsemen, which is defensiveness. Because the defensive. natural- I'm writing this down. By the way, all the married couples who are listening to this, please write this down. Criticism is one. Def- what is two? Defense? Defensiveness. Defensiveness. Okay. The natural reaction when a person feels defense, when a person feels attacked, when they feel criticized, right. is to want to defend them- themselves. And there's a few ways that defensiveness can show up. Defensiveness can show up in a blanket denial. You never take out the garbage. Yes, I do. You're, you're just wrong. I'm just, I'm just denying your, your criticism. Right. Defensiveness can show up in the form of deflecting it. And that might be in the form of you never take out the garbage. Well, oh, yeah, but I do the dishes and I do the laundry. So I'm right. kind of deflecting responsibility. And I can also reflect it right back. I can send it right back to you. You never take out the garbage. Oh, yeah? Well, you never cook, right? So now we're getting into a back and forth. So defensiveness oftentimes breeds more defensiveness or can breed criticism because you're criticizing me, and in my act to defend myself, I criticize you back. 
or I, I defend myself and I kind of pull myself back in other ways. So now you may feel the desire to want to criticize me even more because I'm not receiving your criticism. Or you may want to get defensive in response to my criticism. Wait, so, so, what's the, so what's the positive recommendation here? So the antidote for defensiveness is taking responsibility. Okay. And okay. when we talk about taking responsibility, we don't apply this concept of taking responsibility in, if there's any form of like physical or verbal or sexual abuse. We don't talk about taking responsibility in those contexts. We talk about taking responsibility in what is my role in this situation? Right. How do I, how is my experience playing into this? So for mm-hmm. example, let's say I'm upset that my wife didn't take out the garbage. Can I acknowledge that I'm upset because this is important to me, right? My wife may not care about this so much, but maybe I grew up in a home where if I didn't take out the garbage, I got yelled at. So if the garbage isn't taken out, that stirs up pain for me. That stirs up anxiety or stress for me. Can I acknowledge this is a part of my story? This is a part of my mm-hmm. responsibility in this conversation is this, this is upsetting to me, not because my, my partner inherently did something so bad, but because this incident, this event right. stirs up parts of my story. Right. And, and by the way, because I heard Dr. Gottman, I went on one of his uh, – all the MG rabbis did, did this um, a couple of years ago. And I guess it works, what you're suggesting, because you're deflecting – not deflecting. You're preventing the other person from getting defensive because you're, mm-hmm. you're demonstrating, you're acknowledging your role. Um, which is not get, letting the other person off the hook fully, but it's it's not pushing them against the wall where they have to defend themselves. Exactly. Okay, so, cool. So that's the, the antidote for defensiveness is taking responsibility. And that might be that let's say I did extend a critique or a criticism by saying you never take out the garbage. Can my spouse take responsibility and acknowledge, you know what, I didn't take out the garbage here. Because when I accept responsibility, it naturally cuts down on the back and forth. Sure. You say, you sure. never take out the garbage. And I say, you know what? You're right. I didn't take out the garbage here. I can own that. I'm, I'm receiving your influence. I'm receiving your comment versus trying to, to reject it or deflect it or deny mm-hmm. it. So by taking responsibility, it actually slows down conflict. Correct. The third of the four horsemen that Gottman talks about is contempt. This is the one that Gottman describes as the most problematic. And this comes down to not seeing the other person as an equal. I am coming to, from a position of moral superiority. We're not on the same playing field. I am looking down at you. So I'll kind of illustrate what that looks like. A critique is you didn't take out the garbage. Criticism is you never take out the garbage. Mm-hmm. Contempt is look how disgusting you are. You're a filthy animal. You're letting the garbage pile. What kind of animal are you? Mm-hmm. Right? I am mm-hmm. looking down at you. We are not on the same playing field. Right. That's definitely got to set the relationship back. <laughs> right. So that, that is a very damaging experience in a relationship because now you're not seeing the person with fondness or admiration or respect i'm looking down at you and if there isn't a platform of acceptance a platform of appreciation a platform of admiration we're kind of starting off from a position where someone is already going to be feeling unsafe in the relationship Mm -hmm. the antidote for uh for contempt is building a culture of appreciation in the relationship Because if I'm especially attuned to noticing the things in the relationship that I'm upset by, that anger me, that frustrate me, I am going to notice those things even more. Whereas if I identify the things in the relationship that I value and I appreciate and I admire, I'm more prone to notice those things. So building the culture of appreciation allows me to now see my partner on the same playing field. I'm not above you. I'm not looking down at you. We're in the same space. Beautiful. Uh, Number four. And the fourth is something called stonewalling. 
And stonewalling is a, a, a result of something called diffuse physiological arousal. That if I get so activated, so charged up, my heart rate is going through the roof, my blood pressure's up, my body temperature is up. If I am flooded, I am completely emotionally activated, it's going to be really hard for me, number one, to hear what you're saying, to hear the content of what you're saying. And number two, it's going to be really hard for me to communicate effectively about what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and what my needs mm -hmm. are. So, so this is just an emotional reaction to the heat of the moment because you're in a fight, you're upset, your emotions are getting the better of you. But it's not just emotions, it's your physiological response, your body's reaction. There's actually mm -hmm. a lot of research on what happens to your cognitive processing when your body's activated. We actually right. think differently. We process information differently. We hear differently when, we're, when our bodies are, are very activated, when we have that fight or flight response that's going on. Right. That's like anger. I mean, that's, you know, we, there's a lot of Torah on how uh, detrimental anger is because your um, the adrenaline is pumping and all these other things are going and, and you're not thinking rationally. That's the whole, I guess, breathing taking a couple of uh, breaths in order to be able to uh, to think more rationally. I mean, that's what's happening, you're saying, as part of fighting. So how do you control that? People just get so angry. Great question. <laughs> Number one is we have to learn that we actually don't have a great deal of control over that. Well, okay. It's learn to self-soothe. Right? What your body does, mm -hmm. your body does automatically, right? You don't have to make your body increase its heart rate. You kind of does it automatically. What we can do is learn effective ways of self-soothing. And that might mean effective break-taking in relationships. So if you're feeling really activated and I'm really angry and I can't really hear what you have to say or I can't ex effectively express what I have to say, you know what? I got to take a break because if I, if I communicate in a state where I can't effectively use, uh, let's say, non-critical or non-contemptuous talk, anything I communicate is likely to elicit pain in you or elicit stronger reactions in response. And I want you to hear what I have to say, and I want to hear what you have to say. I have to slow things down. So effective break-taking might mean saying, let me, let me take a 20-minute walk. Let me just take, get some air. Let me kind of clear my mm -hmm. head. Maybe it means slowing down my breathing, doing some mindfulness, kind of getting in touch with what's going on. In so, so if a couple, let's say, is I got one of these late-night fights, and it's going on for hours, and just there, would you suggest like a break then? Because some people are like, oh, we can't go to sleep angry with each other we got to get this thing done resolve it we can't get back to it tomorrow it needs to be done now but people are pented up at that time and they're all sure. would you recommend taking a break let's come back to this when we're more reasonably sound of mind i think it's a great point that when people and i actually hear this all the time that people get into their most heated arguments at like one o'clock in the morning <laughs> when you're already exhausted right there's there's a you know, if, if you haven't slept, like that's going to, that plays a really significant, uh, plays a, a significant role in how you react in given situations. I think the idea that you can't go to bed angry is incorrect. I think you, you disagree with that. You can go to bed angry. Should you go to bed angry? I think if you have the ability to resolve a disagreement before you go to sleep, then, then sure. But right. sometimes giving yourself a little bit of space in the in the disagreement gives you some time to process and to really analyze right. and experience right. your experience in a different way. Gottman talks about taking breaks of between 20 minutes and 24 hours. So if you're really activated, you're really upset, put a paw, put a pin in this. Let's talk about Love this tomorrow. Love it. Time to really digest That's great. And, feeling. and can we then engage each other in a more workable, meaningful way? All right. So let's review this for our customers here. Number one, um, four things not to do and then we have an an anecdote or antidote or i don't know yeah. 
antidote to each one. Okay, the first is criticism. And um, the, the antidote to that is to be very specific about the, yeah, go ahead, please. The antidote for criticism is a gentle startup. <laughs> By gentle startup, we're talking about, I'm not talking about you, talking about how I feel. I got you. Because if I talk about what you're doing, your natural proclivity is going to be to defend yourself. Right. If I'm talking about how I'm feeling, there's very little to defend. Wasn't that the second? What what was the second? Second is defensiveness. Right. I thought that was defensiveness. In other words, I thought defensiveness is not, look, you left something on the floor again. How could you do that? As opposed to when I see that on the floor, it triggers this off within me. I had this situation growing up, yada, yada. Isn't that, um, I thought that was more. That's taking responsibility over your experience. Okay, okay. Startup would be starting off with, let me talk about I. So if I start off a conversation with you didn't take out the garbage, right? The sentence starts with you. But if I start the sentence off with I'm feeling really overwhelmed, right? I'm feeling really upset. Gotcha. Right. I'm actually opening the door to dialogue because that's a much gentler way to engage the content versus starting off with here's what you're doing wrong. Okay, good. So a general start off starting with words like I, number two, taking responsibility of whatever part you're playing in this, even if it's a, a minimal role. The third we said to really stay away from is contempt. Mm-hmm. Contempt is where you are um, sort of uh, exhibiting moral superiority. I think that was the language you used, exactly. you know, yeah. and um, really looking down at the person and not having enough uh, respect, I guess, between the two. Mm-hmm. My mother, uh, blessed memory, always used to say um, she felt that that was one of the like key factor in a relationship, that there'd be respect between the couple. Sure. Um and then the fourth you're saying is is this the physiological ramifications of this being flooded with emotions? And to that you suggested we uh, we do a little self soothing, whether it's cutting a conversation, uh, going out for a walk, doing some breathing, chilling out a little. Exactly. And you don't and you don't have to get it all done before you go to sleep at night. That my, that's my personal. I, I've I've definitely heard the the statement never go to bed angry. I don't necessarily think that that applies uh, in many cases. Right. I think sometimes giving yourself a little bit of space does a world of of of, uh, of impact in how two people right. engage in a significant conversation. And, and tell us a little. I know we're we're it's getting a little late, but tell us a little about the role of acceptance. You mentioned that before, uh, the role of acceptance in how that plays out in other areas of one's life as well. Then. So uh, research by Neil Jacobson and Andrew Christensen, who pioneered a field of, of couples therapy called integrative behavioral couples therapy, talk about the role of acceptance in promoting change in, in that if I don't accept who you are and I try to change you, right, if I, make you, I try to make you do something differently, it actually results in something called psychological reactance. If I try to change you, your natural reaction is to try to make yourself not change. Mm-hmm. Why is mm-hmm. the worst thing in the world you could say to a person who's drinking too much? You have to stop drinking. Because they're going to give you every reason why their drinking's under control and why, like, no, 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 this is fine. And, and, and everyone else drinks this much. There's a, a, a proclivity towards rejecting change behaviors. Mm-hmm. Two couple, if a couple comes in and they're trying to work on significant issues that are going on in the relationship where partner A is trying to change partner B and tr- partner B is trying to change partner A, what you end up is somewhat of a Mexican standoff where you have both <laughs> people saying, I'm not going to change if you're not going to change, you're not going to change if I'm not going to change. So we're kind of, you know, who, who's going to be doing what? So what, what Christensen and Jacobson have, have, have found in their research is that when we start off the conversation by saying, let's open the world of acceptance into the relationship. 
let me accept you for who you are and where you are. Let me create an environment where we engage in what's called empathic joining. Can I connect to your emotional experience? I want to understand what are you feeling here? What's difficult here for you? And when I connect in that kind of way, when I create that kind of openness and that kind of acceptance, it makes change more organic. Mm -hmm. They're going to want to hear what I want uh, and the changes that, that are important to me. If you feel safe and secure and stable in the relationship. But the only way for me to make you feel safe and stable in the relationship is for me to embrace you exactly where you are. I'm not trying to change you. I'm accepting and embracing you where you are. And when you feel safe and secure, then we start talking about, all right, how do we create change in a meaningful way? And there we'll, we'll talk about practical, pragmatic, behavioral or communication skills that, that are important in the relationship. But it needs to come on the heels of, do I feel a sense of acceptance in my relationship? Wow. Great. That's amazing. I want to ask you a very – I want to go back to something before. Um, tell me how – you can develop attraction and closeness without always being physical. I hope that's an okay question for you because you are a sex therapist and you're dealing with couples that are already married. Um, and we can, we can table this because I know we're at the end and maybe this was an unfair question to throw in at the very, very end when we have 60 seconds. In 60 I'll, seconds, I'll tell us. Yeah. <laughs> on one foot, can you tell us how we can um, – how people can develop, you know, we live in such a sexually charged world. Everything is sex, sex, sex. And, um, you know, in Judaism, we're emphasizing the more spiritual components of the relationship. But you acknowledged before that there needs to be a stimulation factor. Is there a way to cultivate a relationship, um, a deeper relationship that can lead to marriage without being physical, which is obviously something that Jewish tradition believes in? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of this comes down to the values that are important to a couple. And I think uh, an important piece of that is not to deny or ignore the parts of ourselves that are sexual. And even if that doesn't mean condoning or engaging in sexual activity necessarily, it's even the acknowledgement of this is something that is a part of my experience. And if I take, uh, take stock of the values that are really important to me and saying, you know what, I want to build my relationship on certain, if it's religious values or family values or cultural values, what behaviors am I engaging in? How am I choosing to move towards those uh, those values by embodying or by activating my choices? Right? What am I doing in this space to connect to those things that are important to me? So, do I think physical attraction or sexual attraction or sexual activity is an important part of relationship? Sure, but is it is it the driving force? I think that's, that really depends on each, on each individual. So I think connecting to the values that are most important to you, and if that means opening up using these open-ended questions or exploring things together or having a sense of, uh, of uh, ex exploration or playfulness in your life, so you're, you're trying to enjoy your time together, that's the foundational piece of a friendship. And that allows for the organic development of the sexual parts of a relationship in a much more natural, much more, uh, much more organic way. Thank you so much, Shai. This was incredible. I really, really want to thank you for your time and your expertise. Um, th this this is very complicated, and you very, not simply, but in a very organized manner, broke things down so we could understand what to look for and how to stay in the relationship long term, because you're going to have to fight, and you might as well fight the right way. Thank you so much uh, for being with us, and I wish I, you the I, greatest mazel and bracha to you and your family. 
you could should continue. Anybody wants to get in touch with Shai, Dr. Shai Krug, uh, he does a lot of writing and research and is an amazing resource. And uh, we hope to be able to uh, keep coming back to you in our community at MGE. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. Take care. Thanks right. so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.